Before we jump into the passage today, I want to share a little information with you about the persecution of children of, children of God around the globe. And I, I say that intentionally because sometimes we, we refer to that as uh, we talk about the persecuted church, as if that's a different church or that's a different group or that's a different sect within our belief system, but it's not. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to just give you some information. I got this from Open Doors USA. Um, and, and really, some of this stuff is, is a little shocking to the senses, I think. Uh, in North Korea, being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence. If you're not killed instantly, you and more than likely your family will be taken to a labor camp. And under horrific conditions, you will stay there until they decide that you're not a political criminal. That's what they call you if you come out as a Christian. Uh, Kim Jong-un is reported to have expanded this system of prisons cam prison camps to currently hold about 50,000 to 70,000 Christians. It's impossible to live openly as a Christian in the countries of Afghanistan and Yemen because leaving Islam is considered shameful and Christian converts face dire consequences including death if discovered. There's a place called Brunei in Southeast Asia and even converting to Christianity there is illegal and owning a Bible will get you nine years in prison. Just last week, Fulani Muslims attacked several Christian villages in Nigeria where they slaughtered 50 people, injured many more, and destroyed over 100 homes. Now, my point in sharing these things with you this morning is twofold. Uh, number one, it's just a reminder that we still have, have it pretty good here. Uh, with all the things that are kind of weighing in on us, and I saw a video last night of a, a Christian uh, worship service they were holding outside in a park or something, and uh, a, an Antifa mob basically came in armed with uh, shields and sticks to attack them and run them off. But we still have it pretty good. And I also want to remind you, number two, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who can better grasp what Peter is talking about here than we can. And that should be a weight that we carry. We should be praying for them diligently and consistently because those are part of our family. I want to talk to you just a minute about growing where you're planted. And before I do, I want to explain this picture. Uh, this picture is a picture that I found when I worked at the nuclear plant. Uh, on our email system, they had a classified ads page where you could go and people from any part of Southern Company could list things in there. And then they had a photography group in there and they would post pictures. And this was actually taken at one of the plants in Georgia and this is in a, uh, basically a scrapyard on the nuclear plant where they would put things uh, that had been in the uh, radiological side, but they counted clean, and they would dump it out there. And those, those metal grates that you see, those are floor grates that you found in most all of the areas in the plant, uh, not really conducive to good uh, elasticity in your uh, meniscus of your knees if you walk on those for a number of years, but it served the function of not allowing water to pool in case of any kind of an accident, and, uh, and, and held people up. So when they got rid of it, they dumped it out here, and it's just unique to me that this photographer, and it was a person who worked at the plant, saw this little flower growing up in a nuclear plant, on, on nuclear plant property, in a scrapyard with just old metal and stuff, and look at the beauty of that flower that comes up. And so when I saw that, I reached out to him, and I said, hey, can I, can I have that image? Can I use that image? And that's been over 12 years ago, maybe. And here it is, finally, I really feel like this is where God is leading us to speak this morning, so I want to use that. And I want you to think about yourself as that flower. And I want you to consider that 
no matter what conditions you're in, no matter what situations you're in, that God has planted you where you are for a purpose. And so rather than complaining about your conditions, you need to seek out that purpose. And that's what I believe Paul, Peter is telling us here. And when he says here in verse 13, who will then harm you if you're devoted to what is good? I want us to look at that as suffering patiently. That's our first point, suffering patiently. And just as a reminder, this, this letter was originally written to Jewish Christians who had left Jerusalem, left their homes and homeland because of religious persecution. Now, he doesn't literally mean that you are impervious to harm if you're doing good. Uh, I think there's a lot of us I'm looking across here would probably testify to that, that you're like, well, Brother Kevin, I was doing the right thing and I got fired, or I was doing a good thing and I got uh, in trouble, or, or you know, I, I've done really good things my whole life. I've, I've lived for Christ, and yet I don't have a mansion and a yacht, and, and so how does, that, how does that equate? I'm going to try to give you that in just a minute. I'm going to try to share that with you. The word harm here is, is a word that means uh, to mit- mistreat or oppress. According to a recent report, the majority of those across the globe who are being persecuted because of their religious beliefs are Christian. Now that, that should come as a little bit of a shock, I guess, but uh, it should again help us to understand the need for prayer and seeking the Lord. So if, if harm means to mistreat, hurt, or oppress, then what is good? As he says here, if you're devoted to what is doing good, well, good is a word that means conscious of integrity or a good conscience. And y'all know the verse from Micah 6, 8. I mentioned it last week that I had preached on it with those three points. He says, I've told you what is good, to act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. Now, if we do that, if we do those things, then that's going to set us up for success. It's amazing how you can go back to the Old Testament and look at the prophet Micah, and he's giving us the formula for success, even in application of what Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter 3. Now, the word if is a contingent word. When you read the word if, you know that there's a contingency statement that is taking place. And so he says, who then will harm you if you are devoted to doing good? Again, not, not that you'll be impervious to their attempts, but I'm going I'm to explain that a little bit later. But, but the contingency there is, who can harm you if you are doing what is good? And what is good is what is godly. You're following the Lord's commands. I want to make this clear. Doing good does not exclude you from earthly suffering but rather it is a result of Christ having exempted you from eternal suffering. I'm going to say it again. It does not exclude you from earthly suffering, but rather it's a result of Christ having exempted you from eternal suffering. F.B. Meyer said it this way. He says, not to be hated by the world, to be loved and flattered and caressed by the world, is one of the most terrible positions in which a Christian can find himself. What bad thing have I done, asked the ancient sage, that he should speak well of me. We should expect to be looked upon by the world that we live in as an enemy. You know why? Because we are. We are an enemy of the processes and powers that operate in this world with autonomy because the Bible says that this world is ruled by somebody right now that is not our friend, that's not our uh, helper. The world we live in now is ruled by the, the powers of the air, the, the princes of evil. It's, it's ruled by Satan himself. He has reign on this earth to do a lot of things, to cause a lot of problems that in the new heaven and new earth we will not experience. 
See, we're, we are now in the already not yet. This is God's world. It is God's universe. It's God's kingdom. But it's not yet been perfected. It's not yet been purged of the sinfulness that we have because of our flesh and because of our adversary. So we're to seek God and to ask God to use us in ways that point people to Him and point people away from the negativity and the hate and the distrust that the enemy seems to just ferment. Our society is just percolating with distrust and hate and bitterness and evil and all kinds of confusion and, and just going against everything that God's Word says. And that's what we should expect. That The problem for the Christian is not that we live in a world that's less than what we should expect it to be. It's that our expectations aren't biblically grounded and spirit-led that we understand our mission. Our mission is to be salt and light. Our mission is to let our light so shine among men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. That's our mission. And it's, it's key here to understand that every follower of Christ is not called to be a martyr. But I want to be clear here. Every follower of Christ is called to be prepared to be a martyr. And I know that's kind of shocking to our culture, but I want you to hear me. If we continue down the road that Revelation tells us we will continue down, if we continue to move away from a sense of morality and godliness and we move into a completely de debased culture, which is where we are fast heading, by the way, then martyrdom could be a consequence of your faith. The only way that you can understand what it means to be surrendered to Christ to the point of even death is to understand the temporal aspect of our life as we know it and to keep a vision of the eternal. Our focus is constantly on the earthly. Why? Because we're neck deep in it. We're, in, we're saturated by it. But that's where we have to let the Holy Spirit take our eyes off of the temporal and shift it to the eternal. Remember uh, Stephen when he was being stoned to death, the first martyr recorded in the Christian church. Stephen, having, having preached the gospel to them from Genesis all the way to modern day at the time, and he said, you guys have taken this Messiah and you've murdered him. And, and they, were, they were enraged and they tore their clothes and they grabbed rocks and started stoning him. And what did Stephen do? Remember what Stephen did? He said, he looked to the heavens and he saw Christ I want to tell you something, church. You better start shifting your eyes to the heavens and looking for Christ before your life is required of you. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. Not might be, not should be or shouldn't be, but will be. You will experience some level of persecution if you're truly surrendered to Christ. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, if you're not feeling any pressure from the world, what is wrong with your testimony that it does not bring their disdain? Because I'm going to be honest with you, loving your neighbor is not going to make you popular when you do it in a biblical sense because loving your neighbor, for, neighbor from a biblical point of view is telling them the truth that the Bible says even if it runs counteractive to what they want to do. And by the way, it will. Scripture, the Holy Spirit is going to run against the flesh. You know why? Because the flesh is not of God. The flesh has been tainted and therefore it seeks and desires to do what it wants to do, not what glorifies God. 
And that is the function of every follower of Christ, is to live in such a way that honors and glorifies the God of all creation. He uses this word devoted, and this is a word in the Greek, deslotes, deslotes, and it means zealous, all right? So this zealousness is what he's talking about. Politicians are zealous over getting more power. Sports fans are zealous for their team. Hunters are zealous to, to take their game. The Sadducees were zealous over the law. Here's my question for you this morning. Are you zealous for doing good for the cause of Christ? And I want you to listen to that question. I want you to throw it off, uh, kind of toss it away offhanded. I want you to think about the answer to that question. Are you zealous for doing good for the cause of Christ? Not doing good so people will think you're a good person. Not doing good because it will earn you brownie points. Not doing good because it will keep you in the good graces of mom and dad. Doing good for the cause of Christ. Because I'm going to tell you, doing good for the cause of Christ sometimes will make you say things that hurt people's feelings. <gasps> Y'all heard me say this before. I grew up in a day, and most of you did too, where we would say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. My goodness, we've lost our minds with that. Nowadays, words are the most dangerous thing on the planet. Oh, well, you can't use that kind of word. You can't use that phrase. You can't, don't misgender somebody. We had somebody last week that got booted off of Twitter for a couple days for calling a biological male him. I, listen to me. I want to be clear. We should not be calloused about people who are confused about their gender identity. But we should also not be cowardly about it either. There's a place where I can respect you, but I don't have to affirm you. And that's what, mean, that's what we see in this meaning of doing good for the cause of Christ. I mentioned this verse before, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not that they will like you, but they will give glory to your Father in heaven. And then verse 14 says, but even if, and this is the key here for us to understand, the phrase, but even if, reminds us that there are good reasons for and results of suffering. If I had never suffered anything in my life, I would still be lost. Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Why, how, in the world, how in the world can we boast in our afflictions? Here's why. Because we know that affliction produces endurance, which produces proven character, which produces hope. Listen to me. If we want to get to hope, we've got to go through some stuff. If we want to get to hope, we've got to go through affliction. We've got to gain endurance, and then we get to see the results of that, which is hope. It also reminds us we're called to suffer for righteousness. Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith. By the way, it's not coincidental that that verse, Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith, comes right after Romans 1.16, which says, For I am unashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it's the power of God and his salvation to the Jew and to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know that the righteous will live by faith. Not by what is good, not by what is safe, not by what is careful, but we will live by faith. And obviously we know this, but Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added unto you. 
You see, everyone experiences some level or degree of suffering in this life. Uh, again, I quote the, the great theologian Hank Williams Sr. No matter how I struggle and strive, I ain't ever getting out of this world alive. So everybody experiences some level or degree of suffering in this life. But for those who have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, listen to me, our suffering can be useful as a means to an end. And this side of eternity is where our suffering ends. Listen, I, I understand it's very difficult, it's challenging to consider things from an eternal standpoint. But at the best, we're going to get 80 years on this side of glory. That's that's. At best, right now I think the, the average is somewhere around 78, 76, which is far better than it has been. If he gave you a hundred, it's not going to compare to eternity. If you told me that I had to diet for one year, I had to eat like a prisoner for a year. No cakes, no pies, no candy, no carbs for a year. And then after that year, I could eat whatever I wanted and I'd never get fat. How many of y'all want to sign up for that diet plan? Now, obviously, we know that don't work this way on, on this side of heaven, right? Donnie, we, we understand that we can't all be like you, Mike, just fit and trim. I want to remind y'all that there's no calories in heaven. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, there are going to be some really fattening things and we ain't going to put on a pound. We ain't going to put on an ounce. But see, the point is we don't have it that way. And, and listen, suffering is no different than that. The Bible doesn't say, all right, just suffer for a little while and then the rest of your life on earth will be wonderful. It doesn't say that. Brother Dan, it, it would be great if it said that, wouldn't it? And we wouldn't have diseases like Parkinson's. We wouldn't have problems like Alzheimer's. We wouldn't have problems like dementia. We wouldn't have problems like cancer. But that, look at me. Then we would be so fat and happy down here that we would forget about heaven. We would lose our perspective of the beauty of eternity to be in the presence of God apart from our sinful nature. We need a little pain and suffering to remind us that this is not our home. 80 years seems like a long time, but not when you stack it next to eternity. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Suffer for the cause of Christ, whatever he calls you to suffer for, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed in heaven. And then finally, he uses this word blessed. He reminds us that we're blessed if we suffer for righteousness, so we shouldn't fear those things that the people without Christ fear. The word blessed there is not the same word we saw in 1 Peter 3, 9. It's the word from the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. It means supremely blessed or happy. In Matthew 16, 17, after Peter had responded correctly to the, to the question, but who do you say that I am? He said, you're the son of God. And this is what Jesus told him. Blessed are you. This is the word he used. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So he's telling them this blessing, this, this uh, honor that's going to be bestowed upon them, this righteousness, this happiness is something that only God can give. The next statement here is pulled directly from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 8. It says, do not fear them or be intimidated. Listen to the whole passage here that he gets it from. Isaiah 8, 12 and 13. <clears throat> do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Wow. 
Then he uses, the, this is the part he pulls from there. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. And here, you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. We have lost the awe of God in America. And listen to me, it's our fault, church. We have not modeled what it looks like to live in a holy, reverent fear of Almighty God. The Bible says it's a terrible thing, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a vengeful God. And we have stopped living that out. And listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who can do that? Only one. The righteous judge is the only one that can destroy body and soul in hell. Psalm 118:6. the Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? So what is he saying in this passage? That you will never be hurt, that you will be impervious if you do what is good? No, what he's saying is if you do what is good for the right reasons, you will never be able to be hurt because you will have the proper understanding of what punishment and suffering and pain is. And you'll see its worth. So we're to suffer patiently. Secondly, I know the Coasties in here will know what this, this phrase means, and I guess any of you who speak Latin, but the second point is semper paratus. Semper paratus. By the way, happy 231st birthday to the Coast Guard. For the follower of Christ, it is our command for how we should be prepared to give a defense. The word uh, semper paratus means always ready. Now, other, other translations break this out as sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, worship Christ as Lord of your life, honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. The, the, the main thing we need to understand is the word regard there is to sanctify, or to set apart, to, to make holy. And then the phrase in your hearts would have been really uh, impactful for the Jewish listeners because they would have understood the context that he was talking about here. And really in this phrase, they would have heard in all that you are. For the Jewish people to understand when he says, in your hearts, <clears throat> excuse me, he was really saying, in all that you are, in the essence of your entire self, honor the Lord. And they would have caught that better than we do. So I'm explaining it here to make sure we understand that when it says, regard Christ the Lord as holy, he means with everything that you have and with all that you are, let him be Lord of your life. This doesn't mean we just hide Jesus away. We, we put him in some dark place in our life. Hudson Taylor said Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. We can only be ready to give a defense if we are already studying his word and obeying his spirit. That's the only way you can be ready to give a defense. And then what is a defense? Apologia. It's, it's an answer, a, a formal justification. Oh, I love this. The Greek word is a compound word of apo, meaning from, and logos, meaning word. Did you catch that? <clears throat> Always be ready to give a defense from the word. Defense, apologia, from the word. We cannot give a defense for the hope that is within us without knowing why there's hope within us. And you can't get that from some help, self-help book. You can't get that from watching some prosperity gospel preacher. You've got to get in the Word until it gets into you. We see Peter modeling this act of giving a defense in Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5. Each time under the strong influence of the Holy Spirit. Here's the point of this whole thing. 
always be ready to give a defense when anyone asks. Here's the thing. We will only be asked about the hope within us when it shows throughout us. I want you to listen to me. If you walk around, it looks like somebody shoved a persimmon down your throat. If you walk around, it looks like somebody has just poured fire ants in your britches. Nobody's going to ask you about the hope that is within you. You know what's shocking to me? When I go to a hospital room, uh, when Miss Dot Strickland is one of the main ones I remember, uh, long ago, early on when I got here, Miss Dot had been in the hospital several times. She had a rough go of it there with her lungs. And she's still battling that, by the way. But I, I go and visit her, and I go in. I don't know her really well yet. I walk in, and she's this little tiny old lady, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm hey, good morning, Miss Dorothy. Oh, come on in, sugar. Just come on in. Let me. I'm just sitting there reading my Bible, and she she looked like somebody that was sitting on a throne, not laying in a hospital bed. And I thought, my goodness, here I have come to this hospital to try to render encouragement to an elderly woman, sick and in the hospital on oxygen, and I walk in, and she makes my faith look like. A speck of dust. You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to ask her about the hope that was within her. Listen to me, church. We've got to stop being caught up in the politics and the pundits and all the, the worry and stress. We have got to be people that radiate the hope of Christ. He says the, the reason for the, for the hope. He's talking about the utterance of the word, the work, the cause of something. Again, I go back to Matthew 5, 16, letting your light shine so that God gets the glory. That's what we're supposed to do. And the word hope is el peace, which is not a hope as in I hope it doesn't rain today, which, by the way, is a really dumb thing to hope in Mobile. But it's not that kind of hope. It's not I hope Alabama wins the national championship. That's probably not a good example either, is it, Butch? This is a confident expectation. We don't have hope as if we're rolling the dice and hope it works out. We have hope as in we are confident that He is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we can ask or think. We can have hope. We can have a confident expectation that I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. That's the hope we have. That's the hope we need to radiate. So that will get people asking about that hope within us. 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, you have conquered them because, listen, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Praise be the name of our God that he is greater than politics, that he is greater than, than rulers of these other countries, these, these dictators. He is greater. Listen to me. He is greater than cancer. He is greater than gender confusion. He is greater than sinfulness and debauchery. He is greater. Let's start living like it. Stop living afraid of hurting somebody's feelings or saying the wrong thing or being seen as, as some holy roller Bible thumper. Bless God, you should not be afraid of them. Bob Utley said, Believers live now in godly ways because of their confidence in Christ's promises and return." I want you to catch that. He says we live in godly ways now because of our confidence in Christ's promises and his return. Tony Evans said Christians must be a strong witness for Jesus with their lives so that they have the opportunity to be a strong witness for Jesus with their words. 
If you live a life that reflects that you are just as worried and fearful as they are, they will not ask you about the hope that is within you. And I want you to take note here that Peter doesn't say you to bring those who ask about your hope to your pastor. So he can explain it. And that's not saying don't invite somebody to church. What that's saying is that you're responsible for giving your testimony about your hope. I can't testify to the hope that's within Jillian. I, I don't understand the hope that she has because I, haven't, I don't live her life. I haven't had her experiences. I can't, I can't testify of the hope that is within Ron Hinton because I don't, I don't know the hope. I, don't, I can't fully explain it because I'm not in his uh, mindset. I haven't experienced the things he's experienced. Here's what I can do. I can testify to the hope that is within me. You've got to testify to the hope that is within you. So suffer patiently, semper paratus, always ready. And then the third thing from verses 16 and 17 is soft pillow. And that may be a little confusing, but there's an old French proverb that says, there is no pillow so soft as a clear conscience. And what he says here is, to, to give our defense with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. How do we keep a clear conscience? What, what is a conscience? Uh, the word from the Greek means a moral consciousness. Let me give you some verses here. 2 Corinthians 1.12. Indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially towards you, with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. Paul also said in Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, For I'm not conscience, conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by that. It's the Lord who justifies or judges me. And then Acts 24.16, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. I, I know you all get tired of this, but look at the similarities again between Peter and Paul. I want to tell you something this morning. Legalism cannot provide a clear conscience. Phariseeism cannot provide a clear conscience. It can provide a holier-than-thou attitude, but it cannot provide a clear conscience. Only the Holy Spirit of God can provide you with a clear conscience. We give our defense with a Christ-like attitude, not like a professional wrestler or a lion tamer. We're to do it with gentleness, which is humility, meekness. Listen to 2 Timothy 2. 24 and 25 he says the Lord's servant must not quarrel must be gentle to everyone able to teach and patient instructing his opponents with gentleness now sometimes I have a tendency to be about as gentle as a mallet to the head but I'm working on that we are called to be salt and light not salt licks and solar flares there's a big difference he uses the words uh here that so when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. We're to be doing this with gentleness and respect or, or honor. Uh, when we're accused, that, that is translated as to speak against. Uh, some translations actually phrase this as when they speak against you as evildoers. All right, I want you to catch that. When they speak against you as evildoers. So verse 17 could really be read literally this way. It is better to suffer because you are a well-doer than not to suffer while being a bad-doer. Now, that, 
that's where I'm trying to land the plane here a little bit on what he says, who can hurt you? Everybody can hurt you, but they can't really hurt you if you're doing what is good. Why? Because you can't be hurt on that side of eternity. Am, am, I, am I wrapping, the, am I wrapping the, the bun around the hot dog a little bit here? Are we starting to kind of get what we're talking about? He's not saying that you'll be impervious to harm if you do good. He's saying if you do good, you will have the Holy Spirit give you understanding that this life is not all that there is, and so they really can't hurt you. They can kill you. They can't send you to hell. They can kill your body. They cannot kill your soul. Why would you be fearful of them when they can't do that? Why? Because eternity is a lot longer than our temporal life. Our temporal existence is a breath. It's a puff of smoke. It's a blade of grass. It's a flower that blooms and dies. It's a wave. Listen to me, church. We've got to have a heavenly perspective. We've got to have an eternal view of things. Stop playing the short game. Understand that when you put your life in Christ, you're playing the long game. Philippians 1.29, For it's been granted unto you by, on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. We've been granted the opportunity to suffer for Him. I told you the story when we went through Philippians of the, the pastors that were lined up on the stage that my friend that was a missionary, that was an evangelist in, a, in an overseas country, he said they, they had him up there naked and chained, and they told the first on this end, he said, deny Christ and we'll let you live. He said, I'll never deny my Jesus, and they shot him dead. And they went to the next one, they said, deny Christ. He said, I'll never deny Jesus. They killed him. And down on the other end, they started praising and singing songs and giving God glory. Why? Because they were counted worthy to be martyred for the cause of Christ. That's a mentality that you and I have to get in America. We've had it too easy for too long and we've gotten too soft. We need to understand the temporal nature of this life and the eternal nature of our soul when we've given ourselves to Christ. He says it's God's will. If that should be God's will, you could... You could Say that as God's choice or God's purpose or God's decree. Here's the point. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Why do some people seem like they never suffer? And some people seem like that's all they do is suffer. I don't know. And I'm going to say the dumb thing that I used to say a lot that I've heard other people say, and I don't mean any offense by that if you've said it. I've been there with you. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why I did that. <laughs> Let me tell you what the Lord has taught me over the years. Hey, Chief, you ain't going to ask Jack. You ain't going to ask nothing. Because it's going to be hard to ask a question when you're on your face crying holy. You're not going to need to ask. You're not going to need to ask. You're going to have a glorified mind, a glorified body. You will understand it one day. And again, I'm going to say it again. I say it all the time. There is not one person you can find in heaven today that is disappointed. No matter what they were caused to go through, no matter what they had to suffer, there's not one person in heaven that says it wasn't worth it. Let me close with this. Let you look at that flower again. And I want you to consider this. We don't get to choose our soul. We don't get to choose our calling, and we don't get to choose to opt out. We have to grow where we are planted. There's somebody who's come to Christ in North Korea where it is deadly to be a Christian. They have to choose to grow where they're planted. 
their growth has to look different than ours. It can't be as open as ours, but it is no different in the fact that they are worshiping Christ with every breath, just like we're called to do. By God's grace and according to God's will, he made you who you are. He put you where you are, and he gave you the task of making disciples. The amount or lack of suffering cannot affect you because you must always be ready to defend the faith. But when you trust the Lord, that's the only way you can have a clear conscience in doing it. Would you stand this morning? Do the invitation just a little bit different. I think this has been a fairly simple path for us to understand what the word is saying this morning is that God has called us on some level or degree to suffer for the cause of Christ. Why? I can't tell you. The only thing that I can tell you, the only thing I can testify about in my life to help you try to understand this suffering thing is that April and I have suffered during our 21 years together. The loss of loved ones, gone through cancer, miscarriage, financial problems, job changes, moves, sickness in our family. And I don't like it. It's being honest. It's being transparent. I don't like a bit of it. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Every single moment of suffering, we've seen God redeem. Every tear we have shed in sorrow, in loss, in hopelessness, in depression, in panic, every tear God has redeemed. We've had opportunities to witness that we would not have had had we not gone through <clears throat> excuse me, some of the suffering that we've gone through. So can I tell you that I enjoyed it? I cannot. Why don't you look at me? I want you to hear me. Can I tell you it was worth it? I absolutely can't. I can stand here today and say everything that we've gone through is totally worth it because I can see God's hand in it. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm just going to ask you this. We're going we're to be done here in just a minute. <clears throat> Always the, the invitation time is an opportunity for instant obedience. So I'm going to encourage you this morning to do that, to be instantly obedient. If you're here today without Christ, if you've come this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you want to commit your life to him, would you just raise your hand? Make sure, I, make sure I see you. Just look up at me. Raise your hand. All right, if you're here this morning and you know that you have made a profession of faith, but as I've been preaching this about suffering, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not ready to do that. I'm not prepared to suffer. I don't want to suffer. And in in listening to this message, you're convicted that you need to rededicate your life to Christ, that you need to be more sold out, more committed to Him, would you just look at me this morning and just make eye contact with me? You want to rededicate your life to Christ. You want to make a deeper commitment to follow Christ than ever before. Thank you. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for those that have looked up. Lord, you know their heart. And you know the work that you're doing within them. And so, God, I pray right now that you would give them the boldness that they need.
Give them the, the conviction they need to live out that hope so that other people will ask. And when they ask, that they can defend it, that they can take them to your word, they can take them to, to the things that you've done in their life, to tell them about how good Christ has been to them. God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word and to gather with your people. I pray that you would continue to be honored, that we would, we would honor you as Lord of our lives in every single thing that we do, every day of our lives. And then one day when you take us to heaven, God, I know that it'll be worth it. Thank you, King Jesus, for who you are. And thank you for this time we've got to spend with you. I pray that you would give us the boldness to take what we've felt in here and take it out and show it to the world. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.